Well, good evening, uh, brothers and sisters at Harvest. We're uh, always happy to be back and uh, bring you greetings from your sister congregation in Zealand, Grace Fellowship. Thankful for uh, you and our partnership and all that you mean to us. Thankful that uh, Dale is preaching by us. Um, we didn't tell you this, but he's actually candidating for our associate position tonight. Um, <laughs> Kidding, I'm kidding. Um, we're, we're thankful that uh, we can do these kinds of things together and continue to, uh, to show our bonds in Christ. I want to invite you to take out your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're going to look together at verses 14 through 23 of that chapter. Sorry, 20, 22. So, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. This is God's Word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. May the Lord write His blessing upon His Word this evening. Well, we've been going through the uh, wonderful book of Revelation at Grace Fellowship over the course of the last few months, and we just wrapped up our little mini-series on the seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And, and I love these letters because of how um, how helpful they are, how penetrating they are. Uh, Jesus Christ, of course, because of who He is, knows everything about us as people, as churches, as families. And so, what He says uh, comes with absolute accuracy. Uh, and in the vast majority of these letters, uh, Jesus has something positive to say. Even the ones where He will bring um, criticism, uh, He often begins with the positive, with something encouraging. And uh, I have no doubt that when the Christians in Laodicea gathered for worship on that Sunday, and as their pastor uh, told them what was going on, that they received this letter from Jesus that he was now to read uh, in their midst, I have no doubt that the church in Laodicea assumed that it would be largely positive, if not entirely positive. I'm sure they assumed that they were a healthy, successful vibrant church. 
So imagine their faces, writes one, as Jesus skipped any kind of commendation and moved directly to rebuke, basically telling them that the way they were living out their Christian lives made Jesus want to vomit. It's a jarring thought, isn't it? How could a congregation be so self-deceived into assuming one thing and yet having a completely different reality? Reminds me of that scary passage in the Gospels where people were even casting out demons in Jesus' name, and yet at the end, Christ says to them, I never knew you. It's a somber passage this evening. But despite the severity that Jesus brings, even here in this seventh and final letter, we find uh, the tenderness of the heart of Jesus as well. He comes with a word of confrontation to expose, uh, but then He also appeals to them, and He calls them to Himself. And so tonight we're going to look at this text under two headings. Uh, first, the condition that they have, the real condition they have, though they couldn't see it themselves. And then secondly, the counsel that they receive from Jesus. So let's consider those together. First, uh, the condition. Uh, Laodicea, the city, uh, one of the things uh, that it was known for was a poor water supply, actually. Um, and so it would borrow water from the north and the hot springs and to the south and the snow melt and uh, would, would pipe into the Roman aqueducts. Uh, but by the time the water got to Laodicea, it would be lukewarm. And Jesus um, borrows this well-known reality, and He makes a spiritual point about it, and it's found in verse 15 where He says to the church, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, says Christ. Nobody likes drinks that are lukewarm. They're nauseating. But what does Jesus mean here? Some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus is confronting a sort of fence straddler uh, who is neither for Jesus nor against Jesus, but is sort of on the, the, the middle ground, and, as if Jesus is saying, either be for me or be against me, but don't be in the middle. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I think Jesus is confronting a sort of spiritual malaise, indifference that's going on in Laodicea. A sort of uh, everything is okay here mentality. As we applied this in Zealand, as I apply this tonight, it's easy for us, isn't it, in West Michigan to fall into that. Everything is okay here. I mean, look at our buildings, look at our Christian schools, look at our churches, look at our nonprofit ministries, look at our family traditions and lineage. We're okay especially when we compare ourselves to other, other folks. Nancy Guthrie says, it wasn't false teaching or immorality or their lack of courage in the face of persecution that earned his rebuke. He was disgusted by the fact, she says, that they seemed to have no sense of their desperate need for him. 
They saw Jesus as merely a nice addition to all the things in their life that brought them comfort and security and enjoyment. I had a neighbor in Caledonia when we lived there who was a a police officer and an unbeliever, but he viewed himself exactly this way as one of the good guys. I think as I look back at my upbringing uh, in West Michigan, so many blessings, and yet I often considered myself through the lens of being one of the good kids, at least being a little bit better than my neighbor, and so feeling somewhat superior, not seeing my own desperate condition and need in the presence of God, how easy it is to tack Jesus on to what is already a fairly comfortable life. We think, well, it can't hurt to have Jesus uh, to add on to things, Uh, but really, I have a fairly good support system. I have my family. I have my education. I have my own work ethic. I can troubleshoot. I can figure things out. It's nice to have Jesus, uh, but I don't think I'm, I'm desperate. Notice how self-deceived they really were, and and Jesus takes their context and turns it on its head. Laodicea was extremely affluent, extremely so, because of where they were situated in a fertile valley at the crossroads of several key trade routes, so wealthy, in fact, that after a a devastating earthquake in the year 60, when the Roman uh, Empire offered subsidies, Laodicea, the city, never actually asked for any governmental assistance because they literally built themselves up uh, by their own bootstraps with their own resources and their own savings accounts and their own ingenuity and wealth. That's how affluent they were. Not only that, but they were known for other things too. Uh, Interestingly, in the context of our passage, they were known for their medical facilities, particularly in the area of optometry. Also, clothing factories, which brought in even more wealth for an already booming economy. Wealth, vision, fashion, which is what makes Jesus What he says so striking, look with me at verse 17, this uh, staggering verse. Verse 17 says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing, Jesus says, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, the very things they thought they weren't. But Jesus is getting at the heart. He's exposing not their outward appearance, but their true spiritual inner reality, who they are on the inside. They didn't think they needed Jesus for much of anything beyond perhaps a nice addition to their already comfortable and prosperous lives. In fact, in all probability, they likely assumed that all of their wealth and all of their stuff and all of their resources was actually proof that God was on their side. It's easy for us to do that. Yet in reality, which they didn't even see, they were impoverished. Wretched, it's the same word used by the apostle in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. This is what they were. Pitiable is the same word used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 with regards to the resurrection where he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all men the most to be 
pitied, without hope. They were poor. Imagine being told in a city known for its eye care that they were blind and for its clothing factories that they were in reality naked. Here's how one translation puts it, verse 17. He says, you brag, I'm rich, I've got it made, I need nothing from anyone, oblivious that in fact you're a pitiful, blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. How does this happen? How do we get to this point? How does a church get to this point? How do we as individuals get to this point, this place of such deception of self-reliance where we no longer realize how needy we are for Jesus Christ. Well, it can happen fairly quickly, can it? That's what affluence can do. Materialism, prosperity, blessing, success, resources, things, over time the very gifts God has given can keep us from seeing that we're still the same needy people that we always were. There's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 warning the people of God of this very problem, which, by the way, I preached on when we entered our building back in March of 2021, because I know how fickle my heart is because I know how quickly we can forget just how weak and dependent and insufficient we are. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 10, and it says this to the people of Israel, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all the good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. But that's exactly what they did. We're on dangerous ground with all of our things. Not that these things are inherently wrong or bad. These are often good gifts from God, yet how quickly we can forget the Lord who gave them and easily deceive ourselves into, into saying things like, well, actually, it's not exactly the same as Deuteronomy 6 because I myself built this house, or I myself built this business, or I dug these cisterns, or I labored in this church. And after a while, we don't see ourselves accurately anymore. Thankfully, Jesus sees us accurately. And, he, and He's so kind and so gracious to come and to confront my sin time and time again. One of the greatest problems we face is the problem of self-deception. How do you know if you're self-deceived? How do I know? Well, a lot of times it shows up in your prayer life. 
One of my favorite quotes on prayer is by H.B. Charles Jr. He says, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. The things we pray about, brothers and sisters, we're giving over to God, asking Him to handle. The things that we don't pray about are things that we say, I got this. See, Jesus hates nothing more than a posture and attitude of pride and entitlement and self-reliance and self-righteousness, of thinking God owes us or that Jesus is a nice little addition to our mansion or that if you take Him out of the picture altogether, uh, you'll be okay because of all the stuff you've already accumulated, or that your success must automatically mean that God is rewarding you for your good behavior. But, But see, Jesus sees underneath that. And He knows what you and I really need, just like He knew what the church in Laodicea really needed. And He's not afraid. He doesn't fear man like we often do. He he tells it like it is, so to speak, in these letters. But here's where this letter takes a glorious turn. Jesus doesn't leave Laodicea just, just in the dust in the pitiful misery of their condition, their actual condition. But as Jesus loves to do, He comes to them with astonishing patience and kindness and grace. We're going to look at that secondly this evening, the counsel that they receive. I love what Jesus says. Look with me at verse 18. Those three little words to begin where He says, I counsel you. That kind of hit me. I counsel you. He doesn't command them. He he doesn't overpower them, though he certainly could. Instead, he counsels them to change. He wants them to see it for themselves. He knows that they can't see it by themselves. It's all by grace. But he counsels them to see for themselves what they've been missing all along, or at least for a while now their lack of humility. They haven't come to the end of themselves to see their actual need. Their biggest problem is not what's outside of them, but inside their hearts. And that without Jesus, not just tacked on, but absolutely taking over their lives, they are what He says they are, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, and nothing more despite all the things that they've achieved. So, how does He counsel them? This too is astonishing. Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you see. He's taking the very things they assume they have and again, turning them upside down. You might possess these things outwardly, but only I can give you what you need inwardly. True spiritual wealth. An actual covering for your guilt and shame. 
accurate vision so that you can see truth. The question is, how can a person who is nothing but a pitiful beggar afford to buy such extravagance, right? Jesus is not telling the Laodiceans, reach deep into your already wealthy pockets. So, what is Jesus saying? What can a person who has nothing possibly purchase? Which brings us back to tonight's call to worship to that marvelous verse in the opening of Isaiah 55, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, where it says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Listen, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus is not talking here about dollars and cents. He's referring to spiritual emptiness, to inability, to a desperateness. In fact, that's the only way to receive the priceless gift of salvation. You have to come to Jesus with absolutely nothing in your hands to bring. That's the only way. By the way, that's how we keep coming to Jesus, too. Some of us can just simply be disoriented. We know we're sinners saved by grace alone, but as life goes on and things happen, we forget how needy we actually are. And so, this isn't just a call to the unbeliever to come to Christ, though it is, but this is also a a call to the believer to come to Christ as you are, as a weak, needy beggar tonight. See, the moment we think we bring something to the table, some merit, some earned favor, some righteousness, some faithfulness, some track record, some credential, is when we're most in danger. And and so, we're called tonight to cast that off by by casting ourselves upon the mercy of God in Christ for the first time or for the thousandth time. See, that's what the Pharisees didn't grasp. That's what we often don't grasp. They thought they were inherently worthy or that they just didn't really need Jesus because they already had their religion. They had their education, they had their status, they had their success. But who did Jesus come to save? Who did Jesus come to help? Not the righteous, but the sick. The sick. Sinners. And how does a sinner come to Jesus? Lost in his or her blindness and sin. Jesus says to us in verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Repent. Repentance and faith go together because what is repentance but the turning from sin unto the mercies of Christ. And just like prayer, a lack of repentance is a sign that we are trying to do this ourselves. But see, that's precisely what Jesus is referring to here. 
See, see, what Jesus says is, is, is making his stomach sick is not, listen to me, is not when you come to him again on your knees because you've fallen in repentance for the same old sin. What makes Jesus, as it were, sick to his stomach is when we don't come at all. When we either conclude on the one hand that I don't need to come because I'm good, or that I may not come because I'm far too bad. And, and Jesus says to both, come, because, because not to come is the essence of pride. Repentance is the way forward. Just listen to his heart tonight as he bids you to open your heart to him. In verse 20, he says these beloved words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To dine with someone is not just to enjoy a meal, it's to enjoy fellowship. Fellowship. That's what Jesus is saying. If you open your heart to His love, He will live inside you forever by His Spirit. He will commune with you. The joy of being His will return to you. But that also means that He gets to take complete control over everything in your life. In the words of John Stott, it is not merely for supper that Christ enters the human soul. It is also to exercise sovereignty. He comes in to bestow His salvation. He comes in also to receive our submission. He comes in to take control. No room may be locked against Him. He is the master of the house. His flag flies from our roof, which means that He owns our resources too. He owns our resources too. He wants us to use our wealth to advance His kingdom. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says, as for the rich in this present age, and friends, we are in this present age quite rich materially, charge them not, listen to this, not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life." <laughs> It's a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's a matter of the heart, what you do with your things. But beware of the idol of success and affluence and putting all of your eggs into the basket of, of wealth and materialism because it will disappoint you and it will deceive you potentially. And you'll forget just how needy you are, that you're from the dust, 
that you're a sinner. Perhaps what Jesus wants most is for us to see and keep seeing our need for Him. It seems to me that that is what exalts Christ. Just like that's what glorifies a drinking fountain, if we could put it that way. What, drink, what glorifies a drinking fountain? When we come thirsty and take a drink. We honor Christ when we come every day to Him, every week, in humble surrender and thirst for grace. There's one more promise. It's, again, a word to those who conquer, which He says so often in uh, these letters. Verse 21, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me in my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. So, to the one who, who sees and who repents and who goes to Jesus and who endures and who conquers, they will receive an amazing reversal from true rags to absolute riches. That's the promise for anyone who comes tonight recognizing who and what you really are and who I really am, nothing but a blind and desperate beggar like Bartimaeus. That's why we read that tonight. When you're blind and you're homeless, it's easy to see your need for mercy. When things are pretty much put together, it can be hard. But that's who we are. And when we come to Jesus like that, He will make us one day for those who conquer to the end by His grace and the power of His Spirit to sit with Him on His throne. That's the irony. Those who say, I'm rich and I don't need anything and I'm fine on my own and I've got my religion, I've got my education, I've got my family are, says Jesus, actually destitute. Whereas those who say, I'm empty, I'm blind. Despite my wealth, I'm naked and needy, are actually clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, forgiven and rich. So, Paul says in Corinthians, for our sakes, he who is rich became poor so that we who were in poverty might become rich in him. It's almost too good to be true, this reversal, except that it's not. How do we know? Because of the one who says it. Verse 14, the way this letter begins, Jesus begins all of these letters with reminding His churches who He is. And verse 14 tells us, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Do you realize tonight what He's offering you? Do you realize this opportunity? Despite the fact that time and time again, we have deliberately moved away from Him. See, all that's left for us to do is to come to Jesus and to keep coming to Him. He's the one who comes to us, right? 
We're called to come to him. But he comes to us. When did he come to us? I'd submit to you that he came to us tonight. If I didn't believe that, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm not interested in just passing along some information. I believe Jesus came to you and to me tonight in his word. And how else did Jesus come? Well, he came when we were lost, blind, poor, naked, destitute, when he went to a cross. That anyone who places their faith in him might be clothed, might see, and might be given the wealth of heaven itself. And so, friends and brothers and sisters, come to this Jesus Christ. And let's remember that despite our things, we are still needy, weak, but loved people. Amen. Father, thank you for confronting us and counseling us. Lord, the very things we think make us what we are sometimes betray us and and we put our stock in these things we can see and we can measure and we can control and we think we've earned. And, and Jesus, you come to us tonight and you just show us that our own righteousness is not going to do. You know us far better than we know ourselves even, Lord, and, and you know what's underneath. But Lord, I thank you that in your severity, you're also full of tenderness and compassion and you call us to know you through faith repentance, to orient our lives and our resources and all that we are and all that we have to you. Father, thank you for the call tonight to come, and thank you, Lord, for coming to us by your Spirit, through your Word, and on the cross. And thank you that Jesus was willing to go from the riches of heaven to take on our poverty, that we who are just like Bartimaeus might cry out, have mercy on me, and be forgiven, and see, and be clothed with the righteousness of Christ Himself, so that what we truly are by faith, as we are united to Him, Nothing can change that, and so help us to find our rest in Him tonight. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Our song of response this evening, as I invite you to stand, is Jesus Strong and Kind.
Amen. Now receive God's parting blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.